today on Ag News Daily. Programs like Women, Land, and Legacy, and also our Women Caring for Land program, which holds learning circles, uh, especially for women non-producer landowners, so certainly all women are involved to attend those. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is the Thursday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am Mike Pearson, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, Mike. How about you? You know, I can complain, but nobody listens and very few people care, so I won't. <laughs> we are also joined by intern Madison Honkamp. Madison, how are you today? I'm doing great. Actually, a little cold, which is weird to say in June, but... It is weird, and I tell you what, I hate it. I have a sweater on right now. It has not been very warm. <laughs> no. Growing degree days are going to be a topic of conversation, I think, as this market and this summer continues to roll forward. We just mm. aren't getting the heat units on this crop. So do you think, guys, that we will see just like a mild summer overall, or do you think we're going to see a hotter summer later in the season? Madison, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I think it could continue like this for a little while because I think even next week is supposed to be like high 70s at the most, but yes, you never know with July and August. That's true. You don't. I think, Delaney, I'm going to punt on your question. I'm going to say we need to get our good friend Ed Valley back on to have him break yes. down what the rest of the summer might look like. I think I agree with you, Mike. Of course you do. I am a genius. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. just leave it at that yeah we can leave it there uh it's not true that's a lie i'm sorry everybody i just lied to you um i have some news because of course when we talk commodities which is what we tend to focus on here at the ag news daily podcast we tend to think about agricultural commodities but there is a huge story right now in the commodity markets that isn't agriculture. Delaney, have you been paying attention to what happened last night in the Gulf of Oman? No, I haven't. Fill me in. Two oil tankers were supposedly attacked hmm. in the Gulf of Oman. These were uh, one was a Norwegian tanker, the other one was from a different country. I don't have the fact handy, so I won't say. But um, basically, the entire trading community, oil trading community, is concerned about what this might mean. This is the second attack like this in less than a month. And because of it, oil prices are up 2% on the day because nearly a fifth of all oil trade ships through the Strait of Hormuz, which is where these attacks happened. And we don't know who has done the attack. We don't know what caused it. Hmm. All we know is that it is bad news bears for anybody shipping crude oil out of the Middle East. And has it done anything yet for oil prices? Have we seen anything reflected there? Oil prices are up 2% just today, just since about uh, midnight last night when uh, news of these tankers really kind of caught on in the global media. Okay, interesting. So, yes, we had been on a nice little downtrend. I'm sure a lot of our listeners had noticed that fuel pump prices have been dropping for the past mm. several weeks. Uh, that trend might be reversing itself just as we speak right now. Okay, mm. something to definitely keep an eye on then. Absolutely. And remember, anything that brings money into the commodity markets oftentimes spills out of that uh, intended commodity, in this case, crude oil, into other commodities that have compelling stories. And we certainly know we're seeing that in the corn market this year, given the, uh, the frankly, horrible spring we've had yeah. so far getting this crop in. 
Yeah, we have had a pretty horrible spring. I've got a little bit of news here because we still don't really know what's going on for Prevent Plant Acres, but a little more insight was offered by Secretary Purdue about how the USDA is going to decide what farmers will qualify for an additional piece of aid for those folks that are taking Prevent Plant, because as we know, the disaster aid bill that was passed finally in the House and Senate and signed by the president last week has a $3 billion chunk of money in there to help folks that were direly affected. So essentially, how I understand it, it sounds like folks who were in a county or a area that was declared a disaster through March, um, you know, up until as of late, those folks are going to have first access at the pot of money, that $3 billion. But it also sounds like, according to a University of Illinois economist, that the USDA will also declare a county a disaster area based on the number of prevent planters, prevent plant acres taken. So if a county currently has a large enough area that has a lot of acres, they could declare that area a disaster area as well, making those folks eligible for that $3 billion package. However, he said the only question we don't know yet, and that's kind of the next question to get answered, is how many acres of prevent plant for a county or for an area need to, um, need to happen before you consider that area a disaster area. Okay, so we got some answers that raised some more questions. Right. Good, good. Making progress. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I guess. But it sounds but, like... But, you know, I think... Go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it sounds like it's it's still going to be quite a long process because, as Purdue said, there's still some areas and states that don't that haven't passed their plant insurance date yet. So, really, mm-hmm. it's going to be punted out into the future. Okay, but it sounds like the gist of it is if you know that you are already declared an emergency area, mm-hmm. you're going to be first in line. So so belly up to that trough right quick. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like. Get in there and see your FSA office. Yes. Always good advice when we're dealing with government programs, I think. Mm-hmm. Madison, what kind of news is jumping out at you in the world of agriculture today? Well, I have to kind of go along with the USDA. I have a press release here from Secretary Purdue announcing that Kansas, the Kansas City region um, is going to be the location for the relocation of the ERS and NIFA. Um, I don't think this is actually the relocation has been signed off by the House yet. Correct me if I'm wrong, but does it um, need to be? I, I'm not yeah, too sure. I'm not so. sure. Oh, it may be it does. Hmm. I think so since it's since it's the three branches. Um Purdue would be technically under executive, I believe. Oh, yep. Okay. So the house has control over the executive or the legislation has control over the executive branch, so they would have to approve it before they make any like decisions. Okay, so that's just what Secretary Purdue, it sounds like, is recommending as the relocation location. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like that is where they will go if it is approved. Um, Again, still, any listeners, if I am wrong, let me know. Um. (laughs) Do it, listeners. Shout at us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. We need to be corrected if we are mistaken, which is very rare. But every now and again, it, it could happen. It could. 
occasionally. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, but if this, with this relocation, I thought this was pretty interesting to see is over, this is over 15 years, but they would, the USDA would save nearly $300 million, um, and that about $20 million per year with relocating these research, um, programs just because of the cost of living that's in DC and then since the ERS and the NFA, NIFA, everything is kind of focused more around the Midwest, further, not really along the East Coast, like where they are right now. So it would be a little bit more cost effective for everything really moving forward. Yep. Yeah, and makes it sense. just makes sense to put yeah. the researchers where the research is happening. You know, it's- Exactly. One of the things we've reported on here, oh gosh, it's probably been a month or better ago, was how after this announcement was made that ERS and NIFA might be moving, a lot of people were deciding to retire early. They were quitting. They mm-hmm. said that uh, that vacancies were up almost double what they were a year ago. But now that a location is picked, and Kansas City is a very nice community, it's mm-hmm. a nice metropolis, even if the interstates running through KC are oftentimes a nightmare at rush yeah. hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. People from DC, I mean, it's the same thing they're going to run into there. I wonder if we'll see people stop quitting because now they know where they can go. Now they've got some, some certainty. I don't know, I but don't know. I'm, I'll just be interested mm-hmm. to watch. It will when be I interesting. Know, yeah, it w- definitely will. And I know just through my mom, she works for the USDA. She actually works for the national office. They like her a lot more since she lives out here and not in DC. So they can give her a smaller paycheck because mm-hmm. the cost sure. of living out here is a heck of a lot smaller than in DC. Right. And frankly, people outside of DC are just better people than people <laughs> oh, inside. DC. This is, this is well known. <laughs> we don't want to offend anybody if we have any DC listeners, Mike. Uh, if we have DC listeners, they probably know they're not as good as we are. Okay. You keep that opinion to yourself. I just made it public to our, uh, multiple thousands of listeners. <laughs> and actually, I, I would love to get our listeners, um, insights. So I, I tweeted yesterday, I was having kind of a, a mental gymnastics day and I tweeted a thread about what we could do with the House of Representatives, given that they are, you know, considering voting themselves a raise. Mm. And so listeners find me at Pearson Cattle on Twitter. Um, I, I've got a thread titled a modest proposal about maybe making the House work from their home districts and legislate Skype rather than having them all in D.C. Mm. I think it's a good idea, but it's probably stupid. And I need to hear from other people why it's a stupid idea. So find me at Pearson Cattle and, and let me know your thoughts. I'll get in on that tw- Twitter thread. Do it. Do it. Jump on in there. I'd read it. Let me know what you okay. think. I'll look um, through that. I've also got some news coming out of the European Union. This is good news for America's cattle producers. We have, as of this morning, or I guess late yesterday, entered an agreement with the European Union to allow the U.S. to have a larger share of the European beef market. So back in 10 or 15 years ago, um, the United States and several of our other beef exporting countries, Argentina, Australia, and Uruguay, were granted a large quota into the EU. Over the past several years, five and a half years, six years in particular, Argentina 
and Uruguay have really been gobbling up a lot of that export quota, and the U.S. has seen our share of it decline. Well, in kind of an olive branch to the Trump administration and to America, the EU has said they are willing to grant the U.S. an exclusive 18,500 metric ton quota for beef uh, starting immediately, and that is going to rise to 35,000 metric tons of quota after seven years. So this is going to guarantee us access, according to EU bureaucrats, Australia, Uruguay, and Argentina have already agreed to this plan, even though they said Australia's agreement was reluctant. Um, they've signed off on it. So this is currently going to be the law of the land. However... The EU is still refusing to allow agriculture to be discussed during our free trade discussions with the mm. European Union later on this year. They're so, kind of throwing yeah. this out there like, hey, we'll talk about agriculture, but it has to be separate from a free trade agreement. Yeah, like kind of like, oh, here, you can have this little peanut, but we're not going to give you the full thing yet. Right, right. And exactly, exactly. We're, they're only going to give us... The peanut, not the slice of the peanut. Mm, okay. Or, or vice versa. I, I didn't know where you were going yeah. with that peanut in it. I don't know. Just You're giving us a crumb, commodity. not the slice. Right, yeah. Crumb, not the pie. Or a slice, not the pie. Maybe we can do it that way. Yeah, that's it. Uh, we'll get there. This professionalism at work, folks. This is how, this is how uh, the sausage gets made. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, nice. So, but at the end of the day, it's good news for, for U.S. U.S. cattle producers. Um, as small, as Delaney said, a small part of access to the market, but it is still a guarantee, which is something we've never had with the EU when it comes to uh, beef exports. Yes, that is true. Well, um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. I should have brought this up a little bit earlier, but because of all of the wet weather we've been seeing, especially in Illinois, the Illinois Agriculture Department just issued a new cutoff date for growers in the state of Illinois for dicamba applications, specifically over-the-top dicamba applications. Their current or their previous cutoff date was June 30th, but because of obviously the delay in soybean plantings, they are extending that deadline or that cutoff date to July 15th for folks to use the dicamba product. All right. Yeah, that is quite an extension, actually. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. I mean, considering the trouble that we saw in southern Illinois and parts of Arkansas last year, uh, they're being pretty dangerous. But I guess it makes sense. I mean, given the stage of, of crop yeah. progress is still so small, you might as well give them a little extra time. Yeah. So that was their thought process behind that there, I think. And then really the last piece of news I have to share with today was an interesting analysis put out uh, talking about the first round of trade aid, which from estimates are about eight and a half billion dollars. So there's still about a billion dollars that was sitting that didn't get touched essentially um, by farmers looking for payments for their 2000, what was it, 2018 crop. And so from the analysis, it showed that five Corn Belt states dominated the first round of trade payments claimed by 46%. And those first five states or top five states were Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, and Indiana, followed by the next five being Kansas, Ohio, North Dakota, Missouri, and South Dakota. So it'll be interesting to see if that lines up with the next round of trade payments as well or not? 
I'm assuming it will just given the ag production in those five states, but the transition from a payment based on, uh, what, uh, it was productivity to counties might indeed make it a little different. Yeah. All right. Madison, what other news you got for us today? That was all I had. Perfect. Perfect. I've got one other piece of news that I think is something we're going to have to keep an eye on. This is the first time I've heard this reported. It was broken by Reuters earlier today that Chinese soybean buyers, remember, they still have about 7 million tons Mm -hmm. of beans to import into China. They've already agreed Mm -hmm. to purchase. Most of those beans were expected to be shipped in the month of July. Well, Chinese importers are now looking to delay about 2 million of those tons into August. And uh, the the trade is thinking, you know, realistically, delaying it a month is not the end of the world. Um, But why do it? Exactly. Part of the rationale, and Reuters quoted a source who didn't want to be named because, of course, they can't be talking about this in public. They said that Beijing might be trying to buy more time. Basically, if trade talks with the U.S. don't go well, this now gives them the opportunity to cancel those orders um, a month later than they would have to if they were making that decision today. So we could see substantial soybean cancellations coming um, from China if if they don't get what they want. And do you – okay, you're kind of our market – the closest thing we have to an in-house market analyst. Do you think that this (laughs) will – directly impact the soy markets? Do you think they'll trade on this news? You know, they didn't today. But uh, do you think they will up. if China cancels purchases? Yes. Okay. Yes, they will. If China cancels or if China begins to give indications that mm-hmm. they might seriously consider canceling, mm-hmm. we will definitely see the market trade that information because we know China probably isn't bluffing. They have canceled orders in the past. They have taken the steep penalties that come with canceling orders and then they've watched the market break and they have stepped back in and re-owned at a cheaper price. So we know they're willing to do that. Um, if, if they don't get what they want or if they decide the price is too high, who knows what goes on in the minds of the Chinese grain importers there at Sinograin. But, um, I have one we question. will have to just, keep an eye on. I have a one question I just thought of. So with this promise of the, it's 7 million metric tons. Is that right? Uh, yeah, outstanding. We've already yeah. shipped six million. So right. So there's seven. What fourteen? There's seven million metric tons outstanding. Have they already agreed upon the price that they're paying, or do they just essentially play the futures markets and decide, okay, the soybean price we like it now, we'll take a million of that? Nope. It's my understanding these have already been these bushels have okay. already been purchased. Okay. Um. So basically, they've they've already in. They haven't written the checks yet, right. but they've agreed to purchase hmm. these at a set price at a future date. Hmm. Now they're trying to delay that future date right. with the expectation have... that they could possibly cancel, yeah. hmm. meaning they're not going to write those checks. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Very interesting. The Chinese know how to play the game. That they do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, speaking of the game, if we are out of news, should we see how the American farmer is playing the game in today's markets, folks? Yep, I think we should. All right. Well, we're out of news, but before we jump into the markets, let's get an update on everything mechanical from our friend, the Hot Rod Farmer.
Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Farm Machinery Digest website and the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Air-conditioned machinery is no longer considered a luxury, but instead a necessity due to the long workdays and dusty conditions that are part of farming. The system consists of a compressor, hoses, evaporator, condenser, system dryer, flow valves, and refrigerant. Mixed in with the refrigerant is a special oil that keeps the moving parts in the compressor lubricated. There are also two refrigerant pressure pathways, the low and high sides. The low side has the refrigerant in the gaseous state while it is in a liquid on the high side. System operating pressure is directly linked to the thermal load, but more importantly, the ambient and underhood temperature of the equipment. A hot day with the engine working hard will significantly raise the high side pressure. System pressure is constantly going up and down depending on thermal load and engine RPM. When the hoses age or oil soaked from an engine leak, they become porous. When the system pressure reaches a critical point, the refrigerant then starts to push through the hose and into the atmosphere. The result is poor performance due to a lack of refrigerant but no visible sign of a leak. Keeping the engine clean goes a long way in preventing AC hose failure. The system also employs many rubber-type O-ring seals that over time will leak slightly. If the machine is older, it will inherently lose some refrigerant even though there is nothing wrong. When this occurs, moisture is introduced and mixes with refrigerant and creates acid. It then deteriorates all the internal components. You are now forced with a repair bill in the thousands of dollars, but this does not have to be the case. Every few years the system is meant to be discharged, evacuated, and refilled with the proper amount of fresh refrigerant and oil. Sadly, few do this. If they did, the air conditioner would outlast the machine and freeze them out. Thanks for listening to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. All right. Thank you, Ray. Now, without further ado, let's see how the American farmer is performing in the game of markets. Well, it was a big day in the markets. In the corn pit, September was up nine and a half cents at four forty-seven and three quarters, with December new crop up seven and a quarter to close the day at four fifty-five and three quarters. In soybeans, the August was up nine and three quarters, finished at eight ninety-four and a half. November up nine and three quarters as well, closed the day at nine fifteen and a quarter. Chicago wheat, another big day today. September up eight cents at five thirty-nine even. December up seven and a half, finished at five forty-nine and three quarters. Jumping over to the world of livestock. Weakness in the livestock markets today. However, they did fight back and closed well above their lows. The August live cattle contract down 47.5 cents at 104.72.50. October down 22.5. Closed the day at 106.15. In feeder cattle, the August was down $1.57.50 at 136.22.5. September down $1.50. Closed the day at 136.50. And mixed trade in lean hogs, the July was down a dollar at eighty three thirty seven and a half, with the August up thirty to finish at eighty two eighty two and a half. Jumping over to the world of dairy in class three milk today, the June contract down a penny at sixteen thirty one, with the July up fourteen cents on the day to finish at sixteen eighty six. So today for our interview, we are joined by Ren Almitra of Women, Land, and Legacy through the USDA, kind of telling us what their program is all about. Well, for today's interview, 
interview, we have Ren Almitro joining us, and she's the coordinator of Women, Land, and Legacy in Harvesting Our Potential through Women Ag and Food Network um, and all through the USDA. Ren, can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about what you do? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll start with Women, Land, and Legacy, which, uh, as you said, is a, is a program that um, it's actually a USDA program, but it is coordinated through the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network. So we have a really great partnership, um, and I'm actually an employee with the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network um, as as a coordinator. So um, as the as the statewide coordinator for this program, um, what I do is help uh, all of our Women, Land, and Legacy chapters um, help them uh, do the outreach that they're doing at their local level, and I help new chapters get going. Um, and we actually call our local chapters teams, so I, I help our, our local teams um, do the work that, that they're doing. And so this program works very much um, from the ground up at the county level, um, and local teams form that are made up of partnerships of the USDA agencies, such as the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the Farm Service Agency, the Soil and Water Conservation Districts, um, and then... Uh, our, our county um, landowners and women farmers join those teams as well. And those women um, on that team are tasked with providing outreach to their whole county um, based on local needs. So it's very much a program based on listening to what women uh, need as far as resources um, to make best, de- best decisions for their land and farming operations, um, and then providing outreach um, and education and networking opportunities based on, uh, based on that need. So, Ren, I'm curious, why is there, what makes you believe there is a special need to educate women on the different aspects of land owning or land ownership in rural America today? Sure. So, you know, we know that, uh, as we all know, that women have been involved um, uh, on, on the farm um, for, for eons, um, but often uh, don't necessarily have the same access to resources, aren't necessarily in charge of some of the primary decision-making on the farm. And so um, uh, either as they become partners or, or as they take on more ownership or as they inherit farms from their husbands or fathers, they often are um, needing a little bit more support um, and networking. And so um, so we find that these programs are so valuable for women across the board, um, not only for getting connected with those resources that I mentioned, those, uh, you know, those agencies and expertise that are going to help them make those kind of um, more uh, logistical decisions or more kind of business-related decisions, but, you know, equally important we find um, that bringing women together to network with each other is so valuable. Um, and not all cases, but often um, women can feel isolated um, in rural America. And so having these um, different uh, programs through not just Women, Land, and Legacy, but our other programs with the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network to bring women together to network and learn from each other, you know, often these women are just as much um, uh, experts as, as people that might be standing in the front of the room sharing information. And so um, it's, it's just so valuable, and we, we, we hear always that that is, that part of it, the, co- the component of networking, is just such an important part. Um, and so I would say both of those are, are really crucial um, for, for, for our programming. Absolutely. Networking is definitely uh, how you learn a lot from other people, getting some of that tacit knowledge passed along. When you look at, Ren, the breakdown of women involved, it looks like from your website, from both the Women, Land, and Legacy, and also the Women, Food, and Ag Network websites, 
that there's a very large variety of women farmers. It doesn't look like you're necessarily catering to just the traditional, you know, maybe row crop livestock farmers. Can you tell us a little bit about the breakdown of the demographics of some of those ladies that you're working with? Yeah, sure. I, I can't speak in terms of like specific numbers per se, but um, but we do. We definitely um, serve a, a wide range of women, as you're observing. Um, and so, you know, I would say a couple of our programs, like Women Land and Legacy, and also our Women Caring for Land program, which holds learning circles, uh, especially for women non-producer landowners. So certainly, all women are involved to attend those. Um, are, are very much um, tend to we tend to see more of a demographic of of women who own more acreage and perhaps yes have those traditional um, commodity crops um, and are uh, we, we find that a lot of the resources that they are interested in learning more about um, are you know how to work with their tenants on um, conservation on their farms and um, and and uh, and other practices as well as um, you know I think across the board uh, land transition and, and and farm and business transition is huge as, as we all know um, in farming in general but we're hearing that pretty consistently across the different types of operations. Um, you know, and I would say a, a large um, part of our membership with the Women Food and Ag Network generally are women in sustainable agriculture nationally and, and around the world that um, we're working with. Um, and so uh, another program I run is called the Harvesting Our Potential program, and we work with um, aspiring women farmers, the so women who maybe haven't started yet or have just started their operations, um, and they're looking to to get into farming, and, and, um, and, and so we do on-farm mentorships. Those women tend to be um, more interested in kind of smaller scale uh, vegetable or small livestock production um, uh, operations, but um, again, we, we really find that um, we've been able to, to really meet the needs of, of an array of women, um, and that's made our programming stronger and we think has made um, connections uh, throughout these different, um, sometimes considered um, separate uh, kind of realms of agriculture, you know, bridging some of those those different um, those different practices and different uh, operations. Ren, you mentioned the learning circles and the networking. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what women who attend an event might expect to learn, what they could get out of it, or how they're structured? Sure. So um, the Learning Circle model was developed with our Women Caring for the Land program specifically, which I mentioned a little bit ago. Um, and that, uh, what that looks like is um, uh, an all-day event typically, though they've kind of modified that for, for different, um, different needs uh, in terms of time frame. But typically it's an all-day event where the morning is spent um, with women, a women-only circle um, and, and it's very intentional set as a circle so that all the participants can really see each other and hear each other. Those women share, um, start that, that session with um, sharing their farm stories. And often they find, and we find, that that's one of the most impactful parts of the whole day is, is getting to hear from other women what their stories are. Um, again, because we're starting to bridge um, and make connections between different, um, different uh, live, livelihoods. Um, and then uh, we bring in resource experts to talk about what their services can provide, um, specifically for, for women caring for land on conservation. Um, and there's also a, an in-depth soil health um, discussion with our facilitators for that event. In the afternoon, um, there are farm tours looking at different uh, soil health um, practices, uh, soil, looking at different soil structures with different um, 
farming practices. And so um, that's specifically for women caring for the land. We do a learning circle for our harvesting our potential for that beginning farmer program I mentioned earlier. Um, and so again, uh, and I feel kind of like a broken record, but again, these are opportunities for women to, to be in kind of more intimate settings where they feel like their voices can be heard and they can share their expertise um, and, uh, and ask questions very comfortably. So we find that these are very safe, comfortable spaces for women. That's great, Ren. And, you know, kind of circling back kind of to touch on a lot of women are really inheriting land a lot this century, much, much more than any past. Um, have you seen with kind of helping these women get started, get their foot in the door in the ag industry? Have you seen any pushback from, you know, our superiors in the industry? Um. Let's see. I'm not quite sure I understand the last part of, of your question. Could you repeat it? So what is the kind of um, pushback or issues you kind of face as a woman woman in the industry um, when it is kind of a typically male-dominated industry? Okay, sure. So, you know, we do – we definitely hear stories from women in our network about – just generally being um, uh, being in, in in the circle as a woman that especially uh, women that might be trying to um, those women that like you said have maybe recently inherited a farm um, or are having to start making those decisions um, and we do hear some pretty sad stories occasionally of um, uh, of, of um, you know, maybe tenants that have been working with women for a long time um, and uh, a, a landowner who's now a woman who's now inherited the land wanting to make some other decisions and having that there be some friction there um, and some pushback. Um, and so it's really unfortunate when we hear stories like that. But part of our work is to help empower those women to recognize that, you know, it's their land and, and it's their decision and they have the, the decision-making power um, regarding what happens on their farm. And so we, we do see a lot of, of benefits coming from those conversations. Um, and, and, yeah, certainly other, you know, other stories of um, uh, certainly of women not always being taken seriously or, or being talked over um, or talked past. But um, uh, so, so that, that exists. Absolutely. I, I don't know, you know, as thing, as you as you acknowledge, as women are inheriting more land, I, I'm not sure. If, I can't really say if that's, that's changing. I hope that it is, and I, I, I would guess that it is, but we definitely know there's still challenges there. Yeah, there there are some challenges as well, and it's great that you guys are doing a lot to, to help fix or bridge this gap a little bit for women in agriculture. Ren, I have a, just a basic question for you, but it looks like the Women, Land, and Legacy program is really geared at women located in the state of Iowa. Are the other programs here, the uh, Women, Food, and Ag Network, is that geared to women more on a national basis, or is that an Iowa program as well? Yeah, we're certainly um, uh, beyond Iowa. We are, I would say Midwest, but we're actually um, expanding to other states as well. So I just had some colleagues recently um, in Indiana and Illinois and, um, and Maine, I believe, doing some programmings out there. So we are, uh, all of our other programs are, well, I should say our Harvesting Our Potential program right now is Iowa-based, but we're certainly looking to expand um, uh, continue to expand into other states. 
Now, one of the things that I, I've had the, the privilege of working with Women Landed Legacy for a few years, I think it's a fantastic program. After my dad passed away, my mom was thrown into that world of being a woman negotiating for the first time on cash rent leases. And you know, how do you have a conversation with a tenant you haven't worked with before who's, you know, different than you? And one of the things that I've noticed is that these women land and legacy groups tend to be grassroots organizations. How can listeners figure out if there's one in their county? And if there isn't, how does one go about creating a network like this? Sure, that's a great question. So um, the easiest way to see if there is a county, uh, an active women land and legacy group in your county is to go to our website, which is womenlandandlegacy.org. On that website, we have a tab that says Participating Counties, and we've got a very bright map with all of the active counties and the contacts for those counties. Um, my our information, my information, I believe, and our state team information, and our, our state team is kind of the steering committee for the program, um, is on that website as well, and so we can be contacted for specific questions. If, um, and that would be uh, how you would reach us if um, you're interested in getting a chapter going in your county, and I can talk more uh, with interested people about that. But it's, it's a pretty neat process of, of pulling together partners um, and, and meeting with me to talk about kind of moving forward. So I won't go into it too much here, but that would be the best way to get in touch with us is through our, our website. Um, and our, our email address is, is easy. It's women, um, sorry, it's state team at womenlandandlegacy.org. So those are a few ways. Fantastic. Ren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I've got to give a quick plug for next Thursday. There is a Women, Land, and Legacy Summit being held in Brooklyn, Iowa, for all of our listeners in Iowa or for those outside the state who want to travel and hear some fantastic speakers talk about reducing stress on your operation. By all means, get registered. Just go to the Iowa Land Sales and Farm Management website. It's at iowalandsales.com. You can go through there and get signed up. I'm the MC. I've done it for several years. I love it. It's a fun, fun group of women. There is always a lot of conversation. There's great networking. Ren, thank you for helping put events like this on in the state of Iowa. Thank you so much. Yeah, enjoy that that conference. It is a great one, and I appreciate the, the time you've given me. Thank you. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to Ren there. Interesting stuff going on in folks, women especially, if you're interested in getting involved. I encourage you to, to check out some of the resources that they have available. But we also have resources available for you guys on our Facebook and Twitter, as well as globalagnetwork.com. Madison, tell us how they can find us on social media. Well, Delaney, they can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. And now we, they can also find us on Instagram at Ag News Daily. We have a yes. few posts going up and a few scheduled to go up. So we're pretty excited about that one. So everyone can just head over there and give us a follow. Love it, Madison. Really getting in with the millennials and younger. <laughs> Madison do, or Mike doesn't understand it. I don't. I don't understand it. And so I hate it. Well, get on Twitter folks. That's where you, <laughs> that's where you can find me. Um, without further ado, folks, Delaney, Madison, should we let the people go? <laughs> Let's let, let them go. go.